0: Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today we're going to talk all about vitamin D. This is such an essential vitamin and there is so much talk about it and I have so many patients who are deficient and they don't realize how important this hormone is to reproduction. So today I'm going to be breaking down what you need to know about vitamin D and then I'll be answering some of your questions. Before we do this, I want to talk about this week's Fertility in the News. All right, so this past week, Runner's World magazine published an article talking about the fact that the Center for Environmental Health, the CEH, found that sports bras sold by many major athletic brands contained BPAs well over the safe limit. Even though the research doesn't say exactly how much you might absorb from clothing, staying in athletic wear for hours after you're sweaty may risk your chance of exposure. And personally, I know this is really concerning to me. So if we go to the Center for Environmental Health, what we know is that they sent out legal notices to eight brands of sports bras and six brands of athletic shirts. This is because after their testing, these particular brands of clothing could expose people to up to 22 times the safe limit of BPA, according to California law. Unlike some states, California does monitor environmental toxins and contaminants, and they have a Proposition 65, which sets safe limits of certain chemicals. So these BPA and the polyester-based clothing, these companies have been placed on legal notice, and they have 60 days to try to respond or to make changes. Now, previously, we know that BPA ingestion So eating food that is contaminated with BPA or drinking water from containers that have BPA that have leached inside them or absorbing your skin through like thermal receipt paper, like receipts or the airplane tickets. You know, they print off the airline tickets on that thermal paper now. We know that that can result in levels of BPA that's bad for your body. But we don't have data about absorption from clothing. So I think that is very important to know. So, even though we know that touching thermal paper receipts for even a few seconds or a few minutes, that can result in contact enough to get BPA into your bloodstream, we don't know that about clothing. However, you tend to wear your sports bra or your shirt for many more hours. And if you get hot and you're sweaty and you're sitting in them, it might open up those pores or leach into even more. So, In the past year, the CEH has pushed more than 90 companies to reformulate their products to remove all BPAs, and many have agreed to do so. So the problem with BPA, if you do not know, is that it is an endocrine-disrupting chemical. It can mimic hormones like estrogen, and it can block hormone receptors. It can alter concentration of hormones in our bodies. It can impact reproduction and egg quality, and even exposure in pregnancy, has been associated with a variety of health problems in offspring, such as abnormal development of breast tissue or ovaries and increased risk of breast or ovary cancer later in life. We do know from studies of rats with low ovarian reserve that those exposed to higher concentration of BPA have been associated with decreased ovarian reserve. So this might be one of the causes that we sometimes see in idiopathic low ovarian reserve. Somebody was exposed to high levels of BPA as a child or an infant or when their mom was pregnant with them. So when it comes to environmental toxins and chemicals, there's so much we don't know. Yes, the world we live in has so many chemicals in it. You can't live a chemical-free world. But there are things you can do to decrease your risk of EPA. In general, we recommend that you do not drink or eat off of any plastic, out of plastic containers or out of plastic bottles I also recommend that you don't put any plastics in the dishwasher, that you use things like glass, stainless steel, aluminum, whenever you can. Recommend that if you get food to go, you change it immediately to different types of serving wear. And also be aware of those thermal paper receipts. Just say no if you get a receipt from the grocery store. If you work at a grocery store or an airline, please wear gloves because you are at a higher risk of exposure. And then this newer study or legal notice, I guess, would make me want to change out of my athletic wear after wearing it, especially if I'm getting hot and sweaty. I think that we don't really know the potential damage from clothing with BPA in it, but it's probably better to be safe than sorry until further research is done. All right, well, today I want to dive into vitamin D. Now, overall, vitamin D has gotten a lot of attention in the fertility world because there's something we can do about it. Supplementation of the vitamin D is relatively inexpensive and with low risk. And so when there is potential benefit and very low risk of harm, supplementation is very easy. But I think it's really important to understand what vitamin D is, what potential role it may play, and why you should get it checked or how much you should supplement because so many patients are deficient and this vitamin really is probably quite important in your overall entire health, but including reproduction. So if we start at the beginning, vitamin D has many different forms, but the type we talk about the most is called vitamin D3, cholecalciferol. And in the skin, it can be synthesized and it also can be found in some food or nutritional supplements. You can prescribe D3 and we metabolize that a lot better than we do vitamin D2, which is another version. Now, if we rewind the clock to humans prior to modern society, We probably made all the vitamin D we needed through synthesizing it in our skin from sun exposure. But the reality is current society and modern life doesn't have us do that anymore. And we also know that being in the sun has other disadvantages such as skin cancer and can make you age more and other things that might be a reason why we want to stay out of the sun and protect ourselves from the sun. I know I love the shade but that does not mean that we should ignore our vitamin D. So one, you shouldn't just sit in the sun all the time without sunscreen and say, I need more vitamin D, so I'm not gonna put sunscreen on. But you also do need to understand that very few foods are naturally rich in vitamin D, and so it can be really difficult to get enough vitamin D from your diet. There also are a few other factors that can impact your vitamin D status. So if you have darker skin, then you don't synthesize vitamin D the same way in your skin. If you're overweight, you have a higher risk to be vitamin D deficient. And so some other high-risk groups are vegetarians, people with limited sun exposure, maybe because of living in a cold climate or northern latitude or wearing protective clothing or having darker skin or being an ethnic minority. And if you're a newborn, you're dependent on your maternal vitamin D status. So if you're newborn to a high-risk mother who's vitamin D deficient, you're at high risk of being vitamin D deficient as well. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. So when we think of vitamins as fat-soluble and water-soluble, but most vitamin D does now come from fortified foods, which is typically milk or juice, fish oils, or dietary supplements. So taking a pill for vitamin D, it has to be metabolized into this active form. And it has a lot of good benefits besides just fertility or reproduction. And probably one of the ones we think of the most is it is essential to allow calcium to be absorbed from the gut and have normal bone mineralization and growth. And so if we think about in pregnancy, if you have severe vitamin D deficiency, that is associated with problems with the baby's skeleton development Congenital rickets, so bone disorders, and newborn fractures. So, back when we we're in medical school and we learn about vitamin D, we're thinking of osteoporosis risk and fractures and rickets. We're not thinking of fertility and reproduction. So, why might it matter on that end of things? And now, a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials, and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands, and they do this by partnering directly with Top Factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash AAW for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's QUINCE.com slash AAW to get free shipping and 365 day returns. And now, a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com/aaw. That's rocketmoney.com/aaw. rocketmoney.com/aaw. All right, so if we look at fertility, I'm going to give my disclaimer that I always give when we talk about fertility-based studies. It is tough to study fertility because the outcome can differ. So you have to know what outcome you're looking at and how is it defined. We can look at natural fertility or fecundability, the probability of being pregnant per month just trying on your own in a non-infertile population. You can look at rates of conception with fertility treatments like IUI or ovulation induction or IVF. You can look at rates of embryo transfer success with IVF and normal embryos or rates of success with donor eggs. You can look at rates of success or normal parameters like ovarian reserve markers or semen analyses. So there's so many different things that can impact fertility and the outcome of all of these studies is different. But overall, let's just break down a few of them. It looks like in natural fertility studies, several studies have found that having a vitamin D level of 30 nanograms per milliliter or more is associated with higher pregnancy rates. So you're just trying to get pregnant naturally, you have a higher chance of getting a positive pregnancy test if your vitamin D was higher. If we look at IVF studies, in people who had a normal vitamin D level, they were four times as likely to get pregnant through IVF than those who had a lower vitamin D level and went through IVF. And when we look at donor eggs, so we always think donor eggs can be the great equalizer because if you... Maybe you could argue that vitamin D is important for egg quality. And so somebody might have a lower chance of getting pregnant because their egg quality is not as good. But if we look at donor eggs, now the egg is coming from another source and we're really looking at embryo transfer. And in a study looking at the recipients of donor eggs, a normal vitamin D level had higher pregnancy rates than those with a lower vitamin D level. And this study made a big difference to those of us in the field. It came out in 2014 and was published in Fertility Sterility, which is one of our big journals. Because suddenly we started thinking that it's not just about general health and well-being or egg quality, but maybe there's something about the uterus or implantation or the endometrium that might really be impacted by vitamin D. And that is when we saw many more fertility clinics either recommending testing of your vitamin D levels or just universal supplementation. In that study, because it was so practice changing for many of us, a normal vitamin D level was defined as 30 nanograms per milliliter or more. That's what I use still clinically practicing. In this group of recipients, the pregnancy rate so seeing a baby on ultrasound, they use clinical pregnancy rate, not just a positive pregnancy test, was 59% in people who had a normal vitamin D level versus 31% in people who were low. And that's quite a difference. And when they did a sub-analysis looking at vitamin D levels of less than 20 versus 20 to 30, so still deficient, they both were low. So it wasn't that, oh, well, if you're a little bit low, it's better. There truly was a difference in people who are replete or normal versus others. So this data really suggested that the importance of vitamin D may actually be on the endometrium. And that could be a reason why we see an influence in natural pregnancy rate or potentially a difference in miscarriage rates, which some prior data has also suggested. This, of course, is just one study, but there also was then a meta-analysis done, which helps pool multiple different studies to try to find stronger associations. In this meta-analysis, when you looked at IVF outcomes, so people going ART, or assisted reproductive technology, and vitamin D levels, live birth rate, so holding a baby in your arms, was more likely, if you had a normal vitamin D level, versus insufficient or deficient. So a level of 30 or higher, you had a higher life birth rate than anything lower. So these findings support other findings that vitamin D is important in reproduction and that we also should be checking and paying attention to this hormone. Now, I think it's really important to say that vitamin D is important in a lot of different ways in the body. We know that it has a lot of function in your immune system, is important in prevention or treating of autoimmune diseases, neurological diseases, cardiovascular, and it may also help prevent some of the growth of cancer cells or prevent infections. So vitamin D is huge. This is likely because it plays a role in decreasing inflammation. And if you've been around, besides this bone function of vitamin D that we've always thought about, vitamin D Decreasing inflammation can be very important. Inflammation is so toxic. And personally, I think that's a big place where vitamin D can help. It's important, though, to understand vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. And I mentioned this earlier, but if we think about a water soluble vitamin, you can't take too much of it because you're going to pee it out. It lives in water. You pee out water. However, your body has tons of fat where it can store vitamins in. So, fat-soluble vitamins, you actually can have too much of. Overall, this is rare because so many people are vitamin D deficient. It's like more than a billion people, but you can have toxicity from taking too many supplements. And so symptoms of this can be weight loss, having an irregular heartbeat, loss of appetite, and it actually can even harden the blood vessels Due to too much calcium, and that can damage your heart and your kidneys. So, I don't want you just going over the counter and buying 10,000 IUs of vitamin D and just taking them because I said vitamin D was helpful. That's actually really, really wrong. And the recommendation is not to take more than 4,000 IUs a day unless a doctor is supervising it. And I would never recommend even that much. So, I think it is perfectly safe for everybody to take an extra 1,000 IUs a day. And you will find that prenatals and multivitamins are usually supplemented with at least 600 to 800 IUs. That's typically not enough for most people, so you might need more. It's fantastic if somebody can check this for you. That way you know. I treat people very differently if your vitamin D is 8 Versus if it is 42. And my recommendations are going to be different because you can have toxicity from this. It is also unlikely that you're going to get enough from supplemented foods, although we do see vitamin D in some supplemented dairy or plant milks, orange juices, like cereals could be fortified. And then we have vitamin D in your fish oils and your fatty fish like salmon, swordfish, tuna, sardines, egg yolk, beef liver. So some people may have enough vitamin D in their diet, and if you eat tons of fish or milk or some of those things, you might. So get it checked versus just taking it. But overall, a normal vitamin D does appear to positively impact your fertility in both natural fertility, decreasing miscarriage, improving sperm parameters, and improving pregnancy rates and live birth rates with IVF studies, including donor egg. We also know that it's very important for a healthy baby. In addition to preventing rickets and skeletal deformities, which sound terrible, having normal vitamin D levels also is associated with a lower chance of preterm birth, a lower chance of gestational diabetes, a lower chance of preeclampsia or high blood pressure of pregnancy, and a lower chance of vaginal infections. So overall, that all sounds great for something you can easily fix with a supplement. Most studies show that between 2,000 to 4,000 IUs of vitamin D is very, very safe and it can prevent vitamin D deficiency. So if you're undergoing infertility or you're trying to get pregnant or you're pregnant, this is something you should definitely talk to your doctor about. Again, my preference is to screen you for it because I am nerdy and I like data and I'm going to treat you different based on what your level is. But you might go see somebody who just says flat out, Take 1,000 IUs a day or 2,000 IUs a day. That is totally fine. Again, I usually tell people to take 1,000 IUs a day of an extra supplement. So that's in addition to whatever's in your prenatal because we all know we should be taking a prenatal vitamin if we are trying to get pregnant. A few last thoughts when it comes to vitamin D that I think are really important. There was a randomized clinical trial looking at the impact of vitamin D supplementation on semen quality, reproductive hormones, and live birth rate. This was published in 2018 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And this study showed that replacing vitamin D levels did not improve semen parameters. However, people who were undergoing vitamin D treatment did have higher live birth rates. So it might be something about sperm quality and perhaps not the actual number of sperm we see on a semen analysis. In a subsequent study that was published in 2022, the relationship between serum vitamin D levels, semen parameters and sperm damage DNA in men with unexplained infertility. That study showed that men with unexplained infertility had lower vitamin D levels and they also had higher levels of sperm DNA damage. And so these two studies together Are showing us that vitamin D may also be important in male fertility. And it might just not be as simple as, oh, your semen analysis is fine, you're fine. Because one thing that we are starting to see is just like eggs, it's not just the number, it's the quality. And if the DNA inside the head of the sperm is more damaged, maybe this is due to increased inflammation because of low vitamin D levels, then that's not going to help you get pregnant, and that might result in lower pregnancy rates or higher miscarriage rates. And now, a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual's essential for women 18 and plus. Was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study i love ritual and i love taking their essential for women 18 plus every single day one reason i love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence so every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable it's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients and they have industry-leading sustainability standards no more shady business Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a Caraway for every cook. Their internet-famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared, without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit CarawayHome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit CarawayHome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. The relationship between vitamin D and ovarian reserve looks a little more complex, meaning AMH. So AMH is a blood marker for how many eggs that you have. It is uniquely different than your antral follicle count, but both represent, if we think about one month, your body releases a group of eggs from the central vault inside the ovary and from these groups or this follicle cohort, One of these follicles is typically selected to ovulate, and the rest of them will die off. AMH is made from the granulosa cells that surround these follicles, and this is a reflection of how many eggs you can get in an IVF cycle. It is really important when it comes to fertility treatment outcomes and potentially your time of completing your family. AMH is not related to natural fertility, meaning your body doesn't care how many eggs you have, That has no impact on your ability to get pregnant that month as long as you're still ovulating. However, there have been some studies looking at natural fertility patients. So people who are not diagnosed infertile and looks like vitamin D levels may be associated with AMH. So if you're vitamin D deficient, you may have lower AMH levels. This hasn't perfectly been replicated in populations that are infertile or have low ovarian reserve distinctly. But there also have been some studies showing improvement of AMH Upon supplementation. And most of us now do believe that AMH and egg quality do exist on a dynamic pattern, meaning, yes, you might be lower than your peers, but there probably are some lifestyle factors that can make more eggs come out of the vault or help them be better quality. You know, I'm a big believer of that. I have the Enhance Your Natural Fertility course where essentially we dive deep into what your body is and how to decrease inflammation because inflammation, I think is really what is making our bodies so toxic, especially when it comes to unexplained infertility. But in the context of having low vitamin D levels and a low AMH and replacing vitamin D and seeing an improvement, I think that supports that whatever anti-inflammatory impact we think vitamin D may have likely is beneficial to most people. All right, and vitamin D deficiency has been associated with miscarriage and recurrent miscarriage. So whether it's deficiency or insufficiency, so that less than 30 level has been associated with a higher rate of miscarriage. Whether pretreatment with vitamin D can protect you against this or whether this can be improved, I think that is still out there for discussion. But again, as somebody who's lost a lot of pregnancies, if there's anything you can do that could decrease your chance of losing a pregnancy, I would want to do it. I want my patients to do it. Vitamin D is cheap and easy to take and replace. It is unlikely you're getting enough from food or sun. You should be taking a prenatal, and most people will need an extra level. If you are high risk, so maybe you have GI diseases that impair absorption. Maybe you've had a gastric bypass. Maybe you have darker skin, or you live in a colder climate, or you know you don't spend much time outside, or you're a vegetarian or a vegan, and you avoid some of the food sources. You're gluten-free, so you don't have fortified grains. Ask for a level to be drawn. If you have infertility, guess what? You're high risk and most of us are checking or recommending that you start taking some extra vitamin D. Typically, somewhere between 1,000 to 4,000 IUs a day is going to be safe, but you can have toxicity. So you should be talking to a doctor about how much they think you should take. And if there's any doubt, you should get a screening test done to see what your level is. Again, that's how I manage vitamin D. So, you know, I love nutrition and I love lifestyle things and I love what you can do to try to help your body. I think there's a lot we don't know out there yet about vitamin D. But again, this is an easy one that I recommend you don't just ignore this factor. I'm now going to answer some of your questions that you ask me every week for fertility's sake. I put up a question box every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and I will answer some of your questions there. I'm also about to record another Q&A episode because I love those and I really like it if you want to call and leave a voicemail. So if you would like to leave a voicemail with your question to be included in the next Q&A episode, the number to call is 657-229-3672. Again, that's 657-229-3672 for the As A Woman voicemail. All right, let's dive into some of your questions from this week. The first question is, do you recommend a laparoscopy after three failed IUIs or two years of trying to conceive? I do not, and nor does the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Laparoscopy used to be part of the standard for diagnosis if you were not getting pregnant with treatment or you had unexplained infertility, and that has been removed as part of the recommendations. Now, do I sometimes recommend laparoscopy if I think somebody might have endometriosis they are young enough and their tubes are open and the sperm is fine, that I think potentially excising that endometriosis will help them get pregnant naturally or with minimal intervention? Yes. Do I always recommend it? No. And more often than not, I do not because that approach with surgical resection is temporary. And we do have data that suggests Doing IVF with an embryo transfer and suppressing your endometriosis with a GnRH agonist like Lupron as a part of the cycle for embryo transfer has the exact same pregnancy rates as undergoing surgery and it's less invasive. So I usually favor that because you have higher pregnancy rates, you're actually doing IVF and I'm suppressing the disease without putting you through surgery. No surgery is without risk. That said, every patient is really unique, recurrent implantation failure strong symptoms, inability to function because of period pain. There's circumstances where a laparoscopy to diagnose endometriosis is definitely right, and it should happen with shared decision-making with your doctor. Do you test progesterone after a frozen embryo transfer? So for a frozen embryo transfer, what we do is we grow the lining of the uterus. That is typically, well, there's two different protocols. So with a typical medicated or controlled protocol, we Growth outlining of the uterus with estrogen. We then start progesterone and studies have clearly shown that if you're doing a controlled or medicated cycle, intramuscular progesterone, PIO, is the best. Please do not let anybody put you on a cycle with oral vaginal, not PIO. PIO is now standard of care. Then you do the embryo transfer on day six of the progesterone. There's also a different protocol where you grow a follicle and this is called a natural cycle or a modified natural where you're growing the follicle and that follicle makes estrogen and that estrogen grows the lining and then you ovulate and then your follicle makes progesterone and it's going to make progesterone at natural pulses in response to the LH signals from the brain because you ovulated like normal now some people do not supplement a natural cycle at all it's natural many babies are born out there without progesterone supplementation but I do I supplement those with vaginal progesterone and so will most people When we check these, we actually do not check progesterone levels because progesterone in this case, in a natural cycle, is a supplementation. You have corpus luteum, you're making progesterone. You're making progesterone at intervals. It's going to range from three to 40 plus all throughout the cycle, just like it does naturally in response to LH pulses. So I do not chase it. Now, in a controlled cycle, it's a little bit different. Your body makes zero progesterone because remember, The only time the body makes progesterone is when you ovulate. So if you don't ovulate because I'm giving you estrogen, you're not going to make progesterone. So in this protocol, I'm giving you all the progesterone and I want to make sure it's enough. So I check progesterone levels and we do that on the day of embryo transfer because we know progesterone opens and closes the implantation window. And if your levels are low, then we increase your progesterone. Some people do it two days before, the day before, a week after. I don't think there's any right or wrong there. But most of us, if we are giving you the only progesterone you are making, will check levels and then titrate based on what we're seeing. All right, next is first round of Femara. Progesterone on day 21 was 21. What do you think? I think you ovulated, which yay, your Femara worked. As I was just saying, in nature, your progesterone level is going to fluctuate throughout the entire luteal phase, anywhere from 3 to 40 is totally normal. So when you check progesterone a week after ovulation, which is typically around day 21 if you have standard 27 to 29 day cycles, then anything over three means you ovulated. So that means that this dose of Amara was excellent for you. And if you don't get pregnant, that's okay. You don't get pregnant every month you ovulate, but I would personally use this dose again. All right, next is feeling hopeless after two failed IUIs for unexplained infertility. What should be next? Remember that with unexplained infertility, it's one of the hardest diagnoses to receive because as humans, we want answers. And ultimately, unexplained infertility means the fallopian tubes are open, the sperm was normal, you ovulate, and we don't have a good reason. I think this is either a fertilization issue, an egg or sperm quality issue, or an environment issue, like there's too much inflammation. IVF is the standard of care for unexplained infertility, period, the end. We can try super ovulation plus an IUI, meds like Clomid or Femara in addition to the IUI. But at best, at very best, if you are young, your chance of success per cycle is 8 to 10% with that combination ovulation induction with an IUI approach. So even if you're young, you're not going to get more than a 10% chance of success. When you have unexplained infertility, your natural chance of conceiving is going to be less than 5% per month. So, this is better than doing nothing. But I always frame it to people that this is a try, but nine out of 10 times it's not going to work. And I want you to be prepared if you fall in that with what you're going to do. Studies support doing up to three. But after three, that pregnancy rate really does stop to drop, and I don't usually do more than three in my patients with unexplained infertility, because at that point, they should just have intercourse, which costs $0, and save money for IVF. So if you're really feeling hopeless, talk to your doctor. Maybe you stop. Maybe you try naturally. Maybe you have a talk about IVF and see if that could maybe help you get there faster. Is there any risk of getting ROGAM if I have early bleeding at seven weeks? No, and if you are RH negative, you absolutely should. If you don't know your blood type, you should know it. If you are established with an OBGYN, they will know your blood type. So if you have bleeding in pregnancy, we want you to let us know, even though a lot of times it's perfectly fine. It can be very, very normal. It does not always mean you're miscarrying, but we do want to protect you against something called isoimmunization, where your body starts to attack the blood cells of the baby. So rogram is an easy way to do this, and it does not have risks can you bring ovulation back naturally even if you've had lean PCOS and clomid didn't work? It really depends. My patients with lean PCOS, or I like to think of this as a really true ovulatory dysfunction disorder, it's often very hard to ovulate naturally. Not never. Sometimes you can, but everybody's a little bit different. If oral ovulation induction agents fail to work and there's huge room for improvement in your lifestyle, then sometimes that can help. Get more sleep change up your exercise, eat more nutrients, foods, lots of fruits, veggies, whole grains, really nourish yourself. Don't be under high amounts of stress and see if that stuff can make a difference. Drop your inflammation and your cortisol. But I tell every single patient within PCOS, there's a very good chance you may not be able to get there with lifestyle changes alone. And I'm so sorry that there was a huge push Online for people telling you that you're a failure if you can't do it. This just may be how your body was made, and there's nothing wrong with the way you're made. And just like if your thyroid doesn't work and you take thyroid medication, nobody thinks bad of you. If you need medication to ovulate for PCOS, nobody thinks bad of you. Some patients with PCOS or just PCOS in general will not respond to oral ovulatory agents. I usually will max out Femara. You can try adding on steroids. You can try adding on metformin. You can try. A injectable FSH, depending on what your AMH is. I usually actually do not because if we're buying injectable FSH, I'd rather do some version of IVF and get you a much higher chance of getting pregnant. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed these questions and so glad to be able to answer them for you. I love this every single week. And again, you can ask them on Instagram at NatalieCarfordMD every Monday, or you can call into the voicemail. So 657 3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.